This is Bloomberg Law with June Grosso from Bloomberg Radio. The Supreme Court appears ready to limit the Securities and Exchange Commission's ability to recoup ill-gotten profits from wrongdoers. That's after arguments on a legal tool the commission has used to collect billions of dollars every year. Yesterday, the justices considered the SEC's use of disgorgement to collect money from someone the commission sues in federal court. Joining me is John Coffey, a professor at Columbia Law School. Explain the SEC's use of disgorgement. The issue is whether the SEC can grant disgorgement, and what does disgorgement actually mean? The SEC is empowered by Congress to grant equitable remedies when they find a violation. In this specific case, the SEC found that the two defendants were running something similar to a Ponzi scheme and taking lots of money in. They took in $27 million to build a cancer center, and they walked off with $8 million of the proceeds and built nothing. Should they be liable for all the 27 they took in or only for the $8 million profit that they made? They did spend money legitimately on trying to construct the center. The parties disagree on what disgorgement means, and the defendants are actually saying there's no authority at all to grant disgorgement. It's pretty likely, based on the argument that we heard yesterday, that the court may want to limit what disgorgement means and may want to require that disgorgement applies only to funds that are returned by the SEC to investors. That was what got the most discussion yesterday. What was the basis of their argument that this is an illegal punishment? The defendants are saying nowhere in the statute does it say the SEC is entitled to grant disgorgement. There is a reference instead in several bills that the SEC can seek equitable remedies for violations of the securities laws. Historically, disgorgement was an equitable remedy, but there's still a question of what it means. It certainly means that you can seek the return of the ill-gotten gain. What was the gain that the defendant received? And you can also interpret the provision to say that money should be returned by the government to the injured victims and not simply placed in the federal treasury. So those are the two issues that the court seemed to be most interested in yesterday. Now, has the disgorgement remedy sort of grown over time? It goes back to the Texas Gulf Sulphur case about 1970. uh, But Congress since then did pass legislation expressly stating that the uh, commission can grant equitable remedies. A federal court can grant equitable remedies at the request of the commission. And the numbers here are quite large. If we look just at 2010 to 2018, it's almost $10 billion in disgorgement that the SEC has recovered. So this is an awful lot of money, and uh, there is some debate about whether more of it should go back to the investors, but most of it does. In this case, the plaintiff said that the trial judge had found that they made an $8 million profit, but the SEC set the disgorgement amount at 27 Well, again, the the numbers that I gave you are are the actual numbers. The total amount that investors lost was $27 million. The total amount that could be seen as a real profit retained by the defendants was about $8 to $9 million, one-third of that, in other words. 
And the issue here is whether the court, under the remedy of disgorgement, can require the return of $27 million or only the 8 or $9 million profit. And the court was very concerned about that issue, and they're also very concerned about whether this money had to go back to the investors. Both the liberal and the conservative justices seem to question how they could narrow the remedy without yes. quashing it. Again, one way you could narrow it is say it's only the ill-gotten gain and not the total receipts. These investors were arguably defrauded out of $27 million. That's what they paid in. But the ill-gotten gain, the profit to the defendants, was the smaller amount, 8 to $9 million. And also there is concern about whether this money should be kept by the government or restored by the SEC to the injured investors. So the Supreme Court could come out with a ruling saying that you have to limit the amount of disgorgement and it has to go to victims? That's the way the argument seemed to go yesterday. That is, while the defendants were saying they had no authority at all and the whole case should be thrown out, it sounded much more like the court was only willing to talk about lessening the measure of damages to the actual ill-gotten gain and not the total receipts, and also mandating more strongly that this is a remedy designed to recover funds for the injured investors and not for the government. Just say the court said the SEC can't do this at all. What would happen? The SEC would at that point be powerless. They would be really toothless because the penalties that they can receive, the actual penalties, fines for misconduct, are much smaller than the disgorgement amount they received. On a typical year like 2019, the amount of money they received as disgorgement was three times the amount of money they got as penalties. The penalties were passed many years ago, and they have been trivialized by inflation, whereas disgorgement allows you to get the entire ill-gotten gain, and you can debate what that means. So the SEC would probably have their ability to recover financial penalties and to deter misconduct reduced by about two-thirds. And already there are bipartisan bills in Congress to restore that authority if the Supreme Court strikes it down. Does this seem like one instance where the conservative justices and the liberal justices were almost on the same page? They were pretty close. I think they both were saying, we've talked very loosely about disgorgement. Let's focus what it means. And if it means the ill-gotten gain, that means less than all the money you received. We'll have to see how they write this, but I think they were looking for an intermediate solution that wouldn't leave the SEC effectively without any real sanction. Jack, let's turn to another business case the justices heard yesterday involving the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau. The justices considered whether Congress went too far in trying to insulate the agency from political pressure. Explain the argument that the agency's setup is unconstitutional. Essentially, uh, the argument is that the statute, the Dodd-Frank Act, which created the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau, vested the sole director of that agency with so much authority and such immunity from presidential removal that it offends the separation of powers doctrine, which the Constitution mandates. Separation of powers means that each of the three branches, the executive, the legislative, and the judicial, have powers that the others can't invade. Under this Dodd-Frank Act, the president can only remove the director of the CFPB for cause, and that means that person serves a five-year term. And as the uh, plaintiffs keep pointing out, in the, uh, in the event that there was a Democratic elected president in this election, he would be unable 
to remove the director of the CFPB before 2023, and that's a significant inroad on the president's authority. Now, it's not that different from other agencies, but other agencies don't have a sole director, and they're all responsive to Congress, which funds them. The CFPB instead gets funded by the Federal Reserve, and the president can only remove its director for cause, and that may make that agency more independent than the Constitution really contemplates. The real issue here, the real issue is not whether the CFPB is invalid, but whether this limited power of removal has to be struck down so that you eliminate that provision and sever it from the rest of the statute. And that's very likely the way that the Chief Justice will go, and he's probably the swing boat on this. Jack, what about the Federal Reserve Board of Governors? They have set terms, and they're not funded well, by Congress. the Federal Congress. Reserve Board of Governors, which funds the CFPB, is also a body that's outside the normal separation of powers. It's not really responsive to the president. He has limited authority over them. Congress doesn't have control over them. And the fact that they have control over the CFPB still doesn't make the CFPB part of our normal constitutional structure. At least that's the argument for those who want to enhance and beef up the separation of powers clause. So you think that they won't declare the CFPB is unconstitutional? I I think the likelihood is, given on prior votes of some of these justices, Justice Kavanaugh has twice found the CFPB be unconstitutional. So I think he and some of his colleagues would find that it is already unconstitutional. But I think the Chief Justice will say the issue is only whether or not this limited removal of its director can stand up to the separation of powers clause. And if it cannot, if that crosses the line, we can just sever that provision and strike it down and leave the rest of the agency unchanged. The Chief Justice is frequently saying that the court is above partisan politics, but wouldn't they be intruding on the political branch with this decision? I'm sure some will feel that, uh, but remember, even the Democrats are a little nervous about having someone running that agency, who right now is uh, closely associated with Donald Trump, and running it for three years into the term of our next president, who probably wants to activate the CFPB and couldn't do so if the person serving that office could only be removed for cause, which really means you've got to find criminal or moral misconduct. Is the court's decision likely to have an impact on the structure of other independent agencies? Well, they've done this before. About five years ago, they took another federal agency, the uh, PCAOB, the Public Company Accounting Oversight Board, and said that the provisions under which the SEC could only remove its commissioners for cause were unconstitutional. The SEC had to have authority to remove at any time the commissioners of the PCAOB, on the same kind of argument. So here it's in a different setting, different agency, but some responsibility and accountability to the leading executive officers may be a requirement that the court is reading into the structure of administrative agencies. Dangerous to predict what the court's going to do, but I think they're going to take the narrower approach and at most strike down this one provision about limited removal but removal only for cause, but not otherwise invalidate the agency, even though there are some justices that would like to do that.
Yeah, Justice Gorsuch has made it clear he wants to undo several features of the modern administrative state. Why are the conservatives so concerned about administrative agencies? This has been the theme of the Federal Society and other conservatives for probably five or six years now. They don't trust the administrative state. They think the administrative state defies politics, is not politically responsive or politically accountable, and they want to subject it to both greater presidential or executive authority and probably have doubts about whether or not an agency should be funded other than by Congress. Would you consider these two decisions the highlights of the term as far as business is concerned? Well, I mean, it depends what the outcome is. If they take the narrow approach, they're significant decisions, but they aren't something that's going to really realign the political and administrative structure of our government. If they were to strike down the CFPB broadly, then that would be a blow that would signal that much of administrative law has to be reconsidered and the powers of administrative agencies would be subject to repeat attack. The SEC, at least, already suffered a loss a couple of years ago when they decided that the ability to get disgorgement was subject to a very short statute of limitations. Congress may change that, but there's already been one battle lost. So the SEC has several of these battles they're fighting, and the CFPB uh, is facing potentially a life-or-death threat, but I think it's going to wind up being only a striking down of the uh, ability of the director to stay in office even when the president wants to dismiss her. Thanks for being on Bloomberg Law, Jack. That's Professor John Coffey of Columbia Law School. I'm June Grosso, and this is Bloomberg. Bloomberg.